Good morning, Redeemer Bible Church. I am so excited to be here. This is incredible. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, this whole thing birthed out of a joke. <laughs> Not your joke, but the whole idea of it was birthed out of a joke. Uh, I don't know if you know the history, but um, it, it's not really your history, but, you know, you guys are something God has his hand on and is working through. Ours was just silly. Uh, I went to vacation with a couple of friends, my friend Amel and his wife, and Archie Begalso, his wife, and our current associate pastor, who wasn't associate pastor then yet, Andrew Arcilla. And we went out here, and then people found out we went, went out here vacationing. And then one of our elders says, what are you guys doing, starting a, a plant out there in San Diego? And that became a joke, a continual joke. And then people would come up and say, are you really planting in San Diego? And they started to say, well, we'd be interested to go with you. We'd, and they kept saying that and saying that. And, you know, nothing came of it. And then Angelo comes in back from India, and he says, who's interested in going? I heard people are interested in San Diego. Tell me their names. <laughs> And I give them all the names. <laughs> and what came to be just something that came out of a joke, God put his hand on and blessed. And I don't think anyone of the, the names that we gave you are actually here. So it's obviously God's work. He wanted his people here. He wanted you to um, invade the community here in Oceanside. So it's amazing. And so me just standing here, being to able to see what God's doing is a great privilege of mine, and I'm so excited and so blessed to be here, and I'm thankful for you. As I look at you and those that have come from Vallejo and are now here, uh, you have a very special place in our heart because we've seen what you've gone through to, to be here and to, and to bring the gospel out, and so I'm so thankful, so um, overwhelmed to be with you. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Angelo. I love you, brother. Love you, Jeanette. Um, my son, MJ, is here. My wife, Eileen. We'd love to come meet you if we didn't get to. But I'm going to open God's word now. And before we do that, I'd like to pray. Father, thank you so much. You give us these days so that we might meet with you, to be with you, to be shepherded by your wondrous son. So, Lord, this morning, we're really not interested in a transfer of just information. That's not what our heart needs. Our hearts long to hear from the voice of the shepherd. And we know, Father, you love to do that. You love to exalt your son. Your spirit loves to exalt the son. So we would plead with you and ask you, would you bring the son to our hearts, to our mind's eye? Would you encourage us with him? May we hear the words of the shepherd in the words of this psalm. Bring it to our hearts, Lord. Help it to motivate us to live each of these days that we have. God, and give a special blessing, Lord, to these saints here at Redeemer Bible Church in Oceanside. Work in their hearts, Lord, and be exalted above all. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Where do you go for your help? When that tidal wave-sized trial blindsides you and you're confused and lost and at a loss for answers, where do you turn? You know, I think more often than not, in our flesh, we turn to the absolute wrong sources in our life. Now, we know the right answer, right? Any good Christian knows, I turn to the Lord. 
The Lord's my help. The Lord's my strength. Any good Christian knows this. They, we teach this in our Sunday schools. We teach it to our nursery, in our nurseries. We know this. But in practice, where do we turn? In real life application, where do we turn? I think more often than not, we turn to ourselves. We begin strategizing what we must do to get out of our situation. We become functional pragmatists. We think to ourselves, whatever works, we're going to do. We turn to the worldly professional experts to find our hope. We turn to our physicians. We turn to our psychiatrists. We turn to our financial advisors. We even turn to our celebrity gurus. Oprah, Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, whoever it is. We look to them for our hope, our direction. We turn to other people seeking comfort from our friends, our family members. We'll even turn to technology. How many times do we go to Google and say, ah, I'm going to ask Google. I'm going to ask YouTube to solve my answers, right? We're very different in practice. This is the issue facing the psalmist of Psalm 121. As he makes his way on his journey, he meditates on where his true help and hope lies. And his answer needs to be our first and immediate answer. Let's read this together. Psalm 121. Psalm 121. A song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What a wonderful, wonderful word from God. And God would have us remember that the Lord is our help and keeper in order to embolden us to persevere in our spiritual journey for him. And in particular, as new covenant believers, we can be rest assured it is Christ who is fully God who is our help, who is our keeper. And God would have us know one prerequisite and five attributes of his to help us see this. One prerequisite and five characteristics that describe Christ as our wonderful keeper. Let's start with this prerequisite. The prerequisite is, is this. We need to remember that the Lord is your only true source for help. That's the prerequisite of this. You need to remember it's him. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. In verse 1, it begins with a song of ascents. Now, that is literally a song of degrees or a song of steps. And what was thought is that the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims that would be making their way to Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, if you know, um, I've never been there myself, maybe you have, but in order to get to Israel, it's an ascent upward, right? It's, it, the temple is upon uh, Mount Zion, right? And so as they're traveling, they would sing this song as they ascend to the holy city. And so this is, this is one of those songs. It was sung by, uh, by God's people as they would make their journey 
as they would descend the holy city to Jerusalem. Now, on their travels, they would come from all around in, in order to bring sacrifice and worship at the temple. And as they would go, they would encounter a bunch of dangers in their travels. There'd be thieves. There'd be uh, treacherous weather. So they would face many things. And so this song is actually very practical. It's saying, where, who's my help to help me get to where I'm going? And the psalmist says, it's the Lord. But more than that, what's true concerning the journey to Jerusalem for the Jew is true in our spiritual journey, isn't it? Do you remember the hall of faith in Hebrews? Remember that? Let me read you uh, Hebrews 11.8. It says this of Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking toward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So how does the scripture describe Abraham, a man of faith? What's he looking forward to? A heavenly city. That's what he was looking forward to. And even as New Covenant believers today, aren't we in a spiritual journey? Aren't we looking forward to the day that we will once dwell in that heavenly city? Isn't our walk a walk towards that? Isn't it our spiritual journey? So we could take this in our everyday walk as we make our way to glory. And there's many treacheries in our path, many evil things, many things we're going to encounter and who's going to be our help. And just as the psalm is a song of steps, it's a song of ascent, so the intensity of the message increases in steps as it reveals the character of God. And we're going to see that. So he begins there with, where does my help come from? And this is a word used twice here, help. It's the word azir. It's for it's help. It's being a one who brings needed assistance and comfort. Now, step back for a second. This question, this is written by a, a worship leader, right? Um, writing scripture. And his question is, where does my help come from? Is that strange? I would hope your worship leader knows <laughs> where his help comes from. This is odd, right? This strikes us as odd. Everybody should know where our help comes from. But the fact that God has us here, that the psalmist actually asks this question, and then he answers with a number of repeated words. He is your help. He is your help. He is your keeper. He's your keeper. He's your keeper. He's your keeper. He's your shade. These are repeated. It assumes this, that either we are forgetful or we need assurance in this. Don't you? In your spiritual journey, do you find times where you forget that God is your help? Do you ever need to be assured again that he certainly is your help? And then he says, I look, I lift my eyes unto the hill or the mountain. Now, why mountain? Well, most immediately, they would be thinking, these travelers would be thinking of Mount Zion. So as they gaze on their destination, they're looking toward the temple where God dwelled. And their thoughts of reaching that place in order to worship him. 
So their thoughts of where's their help? It's where Yahweh God dwells. It's where he is. So it's another way of saying they look up to the Lord. And not only that, but the word for mountains or hills, it's used in the Psalms most often to associate with the presence of God and his power. Listen to these verses from Psalm. Psalm 36, 5. It says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like mountains, the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Psalm 65 Verse 5 says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. And then closer to our psalm, another song of ascent is Psalm 125, verse 2. It says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So mountains are often associated with God's power, his ability to protect, his majesty, his greatness. And so as the psalmist looks to the hills, he has that thought in his mind. As he looks to the mountains, he says, who made these? Who made their foundations? Who does this picture? I remember that one. He is my hope. He is my help. And then the great answer my help comes from the lord that is the word yahweh it's yahweh here and then whenever we think of god's name that name yahweh we should be thinking automatically in our mind of what it would be for them that is the faithful covenant keeping god that's his name that's who he's talking about turn to exodus and we'll see this name given. Exodus 3. You remember Moses. Exodus 3. Remember where Israel is in this place, right? It's been just about 400 years since he dealt with uh, Jacob, Isaac. Um, Jacob, Isaac. Help me out. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? It's been, it's been 400 years since he's dealt with, with these men, right? Where he's spoken to them, where he's revealed who he is, right? So they've been in slavery in Egypt for this 400 years. And what's happening to their generations and generations afterward? They're starting to forget. Who is this Hebrew God? Who is this God of promise? God gave his promise to the founder, Abraham, and pass it down, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this promise to them, but now it's starting to get forgotten. And so you have this new generation, and God raises up Moses to bring them out. And this is how God introduces himself back to his nation. This is how he introduces himself to people that don't know him firsthand. And Moses asks, who, should I say, sends me when they ask me? Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers have sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall they, I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. It's where they get the title Yahweh from. 
I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Now notice this in 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So this name that's used, he says, I want to be associated with the way that I made promises to your forefathers. That I said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have a seed. I'm going to give you a land. I want you to remember these promises that I'm going to make sure come true. I'm that God. I am the God of my promise. I'm the God of covenant. And so he's saying to the Jewish believer here in this psalm, who is your help? The God of promise. The God faithful to his covenant. The one who keeps his promises. Remember, that's him. Now on this side of the cross, as we think of the word Yahweh as the title Yahweh, isn't this the title that Christ claimed for himself? I remember being in a religious studies class and they got to the Bible and they said, is there ever a place, did Jesus really claim to be God? And the teacher said, no, he never directly said. What? By the way, that's a wrong answer. That is an absolutely wrong answer. Jesus did claim to be fully Yahweh. Turn to John 8. John 8. Starting verse 51. This is the Jews attempting to refute and discredit Christ. Here in verse 51. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jew said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Look at this next statement. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jew said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I said to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So look at that. Why did they take up stones? Because Jesus said he was really, really old? Is that a reason to stone somebody? No, right? They knew exactly what he was saying when he employed that verb, I am, when he employed that title, I am. Not only before Abraham was, but I am, I he. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, identifies himself as Yahweh God. And that's, Jews weren't having that. That's why they picked up the stones. So this has implications, right? Who is your help? Who is your help? For the Jew traveling, it was Yahweh God. For us on this side of the cross, who is your help? Jesus. Jesus. 
who is fully the I am, who is fully the I am, who has come to earth, who has taken on flesh and blood and dwelt with us. He is our help. He is our help. Christ is our help. So that's a prerequisite. I was talking to a family member, and uh, this, is, this would be her third change of career, and so she was embarrassed. But I was trying to encourage her. She, she went from one career to another, and now she, want, she wanted to become a, um, a family and marriage therapist. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, I'm glad for you. I'm happy for you. But there was something in the back of my mind, right? I know what they teach in terms of family therapy. I, I know what they're going to tell her is the answer. There's a lot of good in it, right? There's so much good in therapy, but what is absent? The big thing is absent, right? Christ is absent. They're going to lead, when she gets taught, they're going to lead her to look at the, the symptoms of problems. They're going to they're gonna tell her to look at, oh, it's because of this happened in your life and this happened. And they'll, they'll go to the surrounding problems, but they'll never reach the heart of the issue, the sin in the heart, and they won't minister the one that could do something with the heart, Jesus. And so I'm trying to weigh this out in my heart as I'm trying to talk to her, be gentle, because she wouldn't necessarily understand that's all behind that. And so I said to her, lovingly, as loving as I could, is like, you know what I found is um, in my experience, my limited experience is the greatest counseling book is the Bible. And that didn't go over that well. <laughs> that did not go over well because she, she went on to say, well, you know, what do you do if they don't believe in that? It's like, I, I understand that you want to help people, Mike, but I need to help. I want to help people, and they're not all going to agree with that, but I need to help them, and there's many ways to help people. And I responded, well, there's a lot of peripheral ways in which there's help. But, you know, that's the beginning of counseling for us is that we need to minister them to Christ who could do something about their heart. And that, again, it didn't go over well. <laughs> but let me ask you, is that true for you? Do you really believe that? If you believe this psalm, do you really believe that? That the beginning of counseling, the beginning of any true wisdom, the beginning of true help is salvation in Christ. Do you truly believe that? That he's the one that can change the heart where the root of the problems are. See, the world will deal with everything else outside of it, but they will not minister them to the one that can change the heart. And so the psalmist says here, what is my help? Here's your prerequisite. Your help is, you remember, it's Yahweh, it's Jesus. That's what the source, that's the sole and only source of our help. Now we get to look at these characteristics. That's the prerequisite. But now we get to see these increasing steps of these attributes, these characteristics about Yahweh that are so wonderful. And God would have us remember that the Lord, Yahweh, is your omnipotent keeper. He is your omnipotent keeper. Look at verse 2. My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. There it is. 
we were just at the conference with Bruce Ware, and he made this wonderful, wonderful observation. I'm kind of extending it, but it was really something that he explained. You go to Genesis 1-1, right? And we have this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And one of the first things he said is, he spoke and said, let their light be, right? And light shone, right? So we have this beginning of creation, and God was already there. He's pre-existent. He's eternal. And he spoke the universe into being. You come to John 1. Turn to John 1. It's as if John is retelling the creation story. But this time, not talking about the physical creation. Not talking about necessarily the physical universe. But he's talking about starting a new age. A new spiritual universe, a new spiritual kingdom that's arriving. And so in John 1, 1, we have, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And who's this Word that he's talking about? Later in verse 14, this word came and dwelt among us. This is Jesus Christ. So think of that. The physical universe, Genesis 1, God spoke the world, the universe into being, and he says, let there be light and light is shown. Here, Christ already exists he, with the Father. He, through him, all things are made. And it says of him, he shone as a light. God spoke physical light into being in Genesis 1. And then he sent the spiritual light who enlightens every man. A new creation. A new spiritual kingdom. Amazing. Now in Genesis 1, when it says God spoke and created, who was that word? Who was that agent by which all things came into the being? It says, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. You know, he could have stopped at that first part. All things were made through Jesus, period. That's clear enough, isn't it? But John goes out of his way. God goes out of his way through John to let you know, just in case you think there's anything that you might think God might, or Jesus might be part of creation. He says, and without him was not anything made that was made. Amen. What power? Who are you dealing with? Who is this one who is your help? It's Jesus. He has spoke the world into being. He is the agent of the Father by which all things were created. Who is at your hand to be your help? Wow. You know, when, you're, when you... Uh, when you're, maybe you're famous, maybe you're trying to hire for bodyguards and servicemen, you want people with the best qualities, don't you? You want the biggest guy with the biggest muscles, with the best qualifications, right? That's who I want. I want him leading me through the crowd. Who is your help, dear Christian? The one with greatest, greatest qualification. He has created heaven and earth. Do you need anyone else? Do you need anyone else? That's what he's saying. 
So, remember Yahweh, and for you, Jesus is your omnipotent keeper. He is your omnipotent keeper. Now, the psalmist, he steps up more. It's a song of ascents, right? So it keeps stepping up. The psalmist then moves from the Lord's creative power to his power exercised on your behalf. Notice the step. God didn't just exercise his power in creation and then leave us to our own devices. But instead, he continues to exercise his power as our intimately omniscient keeper. And so this is our next attribute. Remember, Yahweh is your omniscient keeper. He is your omniscient keeper. He's the one who knows all. He sees all. Look at verse 3, back at Psalm 121. He will not let your foot be moved or slipped. He will not let your foot slip. Maybe some of your translations. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He starts there that saying that this creator God, he's watching for your foot not to slip. What? That's amazing. Wait, the one who made everything is now concerned about my foot? He watches my walk? He's watching where I step? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Is that not amazing? He could have just left it as is, that I created the world in my wondrous power, but then he comes down to be intimate and says, I'm watching your walk, and I'm making sure that you don't step wrongly. I'm making sure you don't fall. Now, that doesn't seem like much, you know, if you stumble and fall. But think about a climb of a mountain, right? If you fall, if you, if you, if you slip, that could turn into a fall, which can turn into over the edge, which can turn into your death. So in particular, this means a lot to the traveler. But how much more? We know that Yahweh God's eyes are upon our walk. He sees us, and he's not going to let your foot slip and then look how does he know how does he know that my foot's not going to slip how is he ever going to pay attention to every single step well here's the answer he who keeps you will not slumber he's watching your steps and ever watching your steps because guess what he's never asleep and the word here actually is to be drowsy or inattentive god never gets distracted from you He's never inattentive to your steppings. He's ever watching you. And it says, this is the great verb. This verb is used six times. Shamar, to keep, to keep, to guard. It conveys a picture of exercising great care to watch over. So to keep, to preserve, to protect, to guard. He is attentive to keep and protect and guard you. Each step of your way. Now, what does this speak of? His intimate individual care. It's seen that he says, your foot will not slip. See, Yahweh is not merely a big picture kind of God. He's very much concerned and involved with the intricate details of your specific life. He condescends to see you and your walk. He will not be caught sleeping. He will not be caught distracted when it comes to the things that threaten and endanger you. He will always be and ever is attentive to your care. 
how wondrous. I remember when MJ was young, you know, a little toddler, and we go to a big store, and I always have the ideas of those episodes where a, 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 an, a, one of the parents are distracted and just looks for a second, and boom, the child's gone, right? And so whenever I went to a store with little MJ walking around, I, w- I always had my eye on him. <laughs> I, ne- I know I would be doing stuff, but he'd always be in my peripheral vision. How much more you, child of God, how much more precious are you to him that he has his eye on you and his eye on every step of yours? How sweet to remember that. He never sleeps. He sees all. But then he says this, behold. Now this is like an awakening statement. It's, it may or may not be in your translation, but there's a behold in there. Behold, hey, wake up. Check this out. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He wants you to pay attention. The psalmist moves from the intimate singular care over the individual to the corporate and national care over all of Israel. Yes, the Lord is intimately involved with you as an individual, but not at the cost of losing his sovereign control over all the nations. God is the ultimate multitasker. He gives perfect care to each individual person while also making sure that all his decrees concerning his kingdoms, his nations, they go exactly as planned. God sees and is attentive to all without being distracted by any. How amazing is that, right? Some of you might have multiple kids. You ever drive in the car and then they all start talking and wanting something? Mom, he did this. I need this. I can't find this. And your mind is just going, be quiet, (laughs) one at a time. Here's the amazing thing about God. Of all of his children, his millions of children, he gives perfect attention to each and every one while never losing sight of what he's accomplishing in kingdoms and nations and in the globe. Perfect, powerful omniscience. And for what purpose? This psalm is about what? I am your help. I am your keeper. Wow. Wow. Another step. The psalmist then moves from the Lord's omniscience to his omnipresence, his being everywhere. Notice this step. God is not only awake and sees the concerns and issues of your life, but in the midst of them, he is graciously a shade with you. He's with you. So God would want us to remember that Yahweh is your omniscient keeper, is your omniscient or your omnipresent keeper, your omnipresent keeper. He's everywhere. And he's specifically where you are. Psalm 21, verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. Again, that word, guard, protector. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Where's the right hand? It's the closest place that a person can be. It's at your side. It's readily at your access. And he's described as a shade. Now, when you're in the shade of a building or in the shade of a tree, where is that building or tree in association with you? It's it's usually not way down there, right? It's right next to you. That's why you have shade. You're right next to it. And that's the point that the psalmist is making. Yahweh God, the creator God, He is with you. 
He is next to you. He as near as he can ever be. He's everywhere where his children are. And he's specifically where you are. And then he says, verse 6, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, as a Jewish traveler going through to Jerusalem, there would be the threat of sunstroke, the beating desert heat coming upon them, and that could cause uh, dehydration, even death, right? So it's perilous, a perilous trip. So he says, the sun shall not strike you by day. I'll make sure that I'm your shade. I protect you from it. But then he says, nor the moon by night. I'm willing to bet if you go into your closet, you guys don't have, you know, I don't know, um, you know, 30, what's the, the, the grading for sunscreen? Yeah, you don't have SPF 50 for the moon, right? Do you? It's sunscreen, right? But here he says, I even protect you from what? The moon? What's that say? I think what the psalmist is saying is that no matter what intensity is, you think I only deal with you for the hard things? You think I'm only going to be there for you when the disaster hits, but then when it's little things, I'll handle it. No, no, no. He says, when the sun is beating down on you, when the big things hit, I'm there. Even when the small things, even something as light as moonlight, I'm there. I'm your shade. No matter what intensity it is, I'm there. The sun in the day, the moon at the night. He's saying whatever time it is. There is no time of day that is not where the sun is or the moon is. He's saying every moment. I'm there. And regardless of the type, whether it be physical, the sun beating down on you, or the moon, there was this primitive belief among um, the unbelieving at that time that the moon was dangerous and could have adverse effects on the mind. They believe that it could cause you to fall into lunacy and it affects your brain. So no matter even what type, whether it be physical hurt or emotional hurt, whatever it is that might be oppressing you, he says, I'm there. God's shade is there day and night, regardless of the intensity, regardless of the type of smiting, whether it be physical, mental, or emotional, he says, I'm there. I'm there in your midst. And isn't this what Jesus is for you? Isn't Jesus present with you? I'll read these to you. John 14, Jesus is about to leave and he talks about the spirit whom he's sending to them. In John 14, he says, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you also will live. Now verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There's this wonderful, wonderful presence the Holy Spirit's ministry is to minister the presence of Jesus 
and the presence of the Father with you at all times. Isn't that wonderful? John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And and we will come to him and make our home with him. Or in other translations, I will make my abode. We will make our abode with them. We will dwell with them. We will live with them. Jesus' presence is with you. He promises. We all know the Great Commission. As he ends the Great Commission, he says, And behold, what? I am with you always to the end of the age. Who is your helper? Who is your helper? He's the one who's most powerful. He's the one who sees all, and he's the one who's always present everywhere you need him to be. That's who he is, our precious Jesus. Another step. The psalmist then moves from the Lord's presence with you to his sovereign preservation. Notice the step. God is not only shades you from the sun and moon, but he actually keeps you from evil and preserves your life. So God would have you remember that the Lord is your sovereign keeper. He's your sovereign keeper in verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Again, that word keep, that's repeated. It's saying there that God will be a bulwark. He will be a tower. He will be a refuge from evil. He guards you from the evil times and its evil influence. Evil will never have its way with you. Praise God. Any and every evil that may impact or influence you must come through the permission of the Lord who cares over you. We've been reading Job in our family times, and it's amazing to read that story that it's actually God who brings up Job's name. Makes you think, God, don't ever bring up my name. Please. But without Job even knowing God is in control of all. And the devil has to say, he has to ask permission. And he says, flesh for flesh, right? You strike his body, you take his things first, and he's going to curse you. Then later, you touch his body, he's going to curse you. Now, if Satan had his way, he would have tore Job up. He would have gave him no hope. He would have done far worse, right? But that was always in a controlled environment, wasn't it? God was always over sovereignly what was happening. Evil did not have its full sway. God was making sure of everything. Job was safeguarded. So it doesn't mean that you're never going to deal with pain in your life. Notice in that last verse, it says, He shades you from sun and moon. Does God, in order to do that, did God take away the sun? In order to help you, did, does God take away the moon? No, they still hit you but it says he'll be a shade over you. And here, it says he'll keep you from all evil. doesn't mean that you're never going to experience any pain, but it does mean this. God is sovereignly over it all. Nothing is creeping in. Evil is never going to have its full sway of what it wants to do with you. It's always through the filter of what God allows, and it's for your good. For Job, it turned out to be for his good. You think of the disaster of Joseph and his, and, and his family dysfunction in Genesis. It turned out to be for his good and Israel's good. Whatever evil they might, might encounter, it's through the sovereignty of God. 
He's over it all. Even in your temptations. You remember this wonderful memory verse, hopefully? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He doesn't say he's taken away, but he's going to make sure you endure it. He knows exactly the things he's putting on your plate. And it's for a specific purpose. It's to grow you. It's to persevere you. That's our hope. He is your sovereign keeper. Not only will God keep you from evil, but he will also be a refuge to preserve your life. Angelo got to preach in the ECMI conference and he shared this verse of Matthew 16. It was wonderful. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is a protective rampart for you. He has his arms around who? You, the church. And Jesus says, guess what? Not even the powers of hell, the gates of hell, they will try to rail itself against you. But my arms are around it. I'm a refuge for them. And it's going to be built. It's going to grow. It's going to prosper. I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to make sure of it. He's preserving your life. And what is he using to preserve and grow you and build you up? Each other. 1 Peter 2 says of believers, and as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Here's the church. You're being built up like a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's keeping evil out. He only puts in what is good for you. He's using it for his ultimate purposes and he's growing you inside. He's preserving you, growing through each other, building you up. And isn't this our Jesus who does this? One more portion, Psalm 128.8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. He's sovereign over everywhere you go. You're going out, you're coming in. There's not... In our context, it's in all of your movements. He sees. He's your sovereign keeper in all your movements. Jesus is your sovereign keeper. Didn't Jesus say in John 10, 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Isn't that true? He's keeping you. Do you remember the reason why you're kept and why you're secure? Colossians 1.13. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were once in a domain of darkness where there was no protection, where we were open to all the horrendous things. And then he what? Transferred us into the kingdom of the Son. It's because of Christ that we're kept and secure. We're in him. You've been going through Ephesians in, in the church. You remember Ephesians 2. He describes us, what we used to be. We used to be children of wrath. 
That means that God's, the Father's wrath was against us. That He was poised to destroy us eternally. That His position against us was adversarial. Right? But Ephesians 2, 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We sang that, didn't we? Once an enemy, now seated at his table. Why are you safe? Why are you so safe in the Savior? Because you're identified with him, aren't you? You were once an enemy, poised for wrath. And he says, because of him, because you're united to Christ in your faith of him, in him. He's placed you with where he is. You are seated with Christ, protected with him. So he's sovereign, sovereign. He's a sovereign keeper. The final step, the psalmist then moves from the Lord's persevering care to the longevity of his care. Notice this. God not only keeps you from evil and keeps your life until you die and then you're on your own. No, he keeps you forever for eternity. Psalm 121.8, the Lord will keep your going out, your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Literally, from now and forever. The immediate context God was going to guard his people in his journey into Jerusalem and back home. But from a greater perspective, he says, it can't just be that. It's from now and forever. For eternity, he's going to care for you. It reveals the extent of God's care. His protection is not good for only a limited time. It's not like one of those infomercials, right? Jump in on this deal. No, it's good always. His protection and care does not have an expiration date. Even now, he's caring for you and he's going to care for you for eternity. You remember the thief on the cross. What Jesus said to him after the thief repented, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we look forward like him to a day we will be with Christ in paradise forevermore. How great is Jesus' care for you? How great is his help? How great of a keeper is Christ? Dear Saint, if this kind of God is your keeper, then what do you have to fear? What confidence you should continually have? The Lord's encompassing keeping care, it's highlighted in this psalm, in the pairs. Notice these pairs. The Lord is creator of heaven and earth. So there's nothing in all creation that is outside his power and control that can harm you. The Lord is over the individual and the nations. So there's nothing that can distract him from his care from you and the whole world. The Lord who protects you, protects you from the sun and even the moon. So there's no intensity of trial that can overwhelm you. The Lord keeps you from evil and preserves your life. So there's nothing that will keep you from being protected. The Lord keeps your going and coming in, so there's no place where the Lord does not see in order to keep you. 
The Lord keeps you now and forevermore. So there's no time or which in all eternity where you'll be outside of his safe arms. All those pairs are showing us over and over. This keeper we have, Jesus is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's sovereign. He's eternal. It'll be a year, just about a little over a year, that my wife was diagnosed with her second cancer. One is enough, right? (laughs) I saw her go through chemotherapy and go through that, and praise God, the Lord knocked it out, and I thought we had put that behind us. And just about a year ago in August, they told her that she had something in her lung, and she had to get it removed, a lung lobectomy. And uh, we struggled. I struggled. She didn't struggle. She was great. She believed in Christ from the very beginning. But me, I struggled. I struggled. And, I, and I, would, I would dissect the doctor's words. I would try to calculate the odds. I would try to find out, you know, how sure is this? You know, how, how much comfort can I have based on those numbers, right? And then God gave this psalm to me. This psalm. And I remember the, the morning of the surgery. I was on my face praying through this psalm. And I remember being bed next to my wife as she was healing, praying through this psalm. And what a bomb. What, what help it was. What a protector God is. What a protector. What a helper he is. And this is our reminder. This is who our God is. And he says, I am your help. I am your keeper. Do you believe that? Your trial may be different. Your trial's going to look different. You need a helper. You need a keeper. You need to believe you have a helper and keeper. Do you believe this? I'd like to talk for a second to my brothers and sisters that are out here from Vallejo that move their life. You say goodbye to family. You say goodbye to jobs. You say goodbye to a secure church and its shade, and you came out here. And I know you've encountered difficulty after difficulty to invade the gospel into this community. I know it. And you face trial after trial. Do you believe he's your keeper? Do you believe even now he's your helper? The same miraculous God that got you out here, that provided every moment to you getting here, did he all of a sudden leave you alone? No, he's the same miraculous God. He's the same miraculous Savior that took you from an enemy to one at his table. He is still caring over you. So I'd encourage you, keep at the work. Keep at the work. Here in Oceanside, God has a work for you to do. It's hard work. It's perilous work. It will not be an easy journey. And you've already found that in many ways that it's going to be difficult. But here's your great hope and joy. Your God is with you. Jesus Christ is with you. He has promised to keep you and guard you until your work here is complete. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So let's be bold. So be bold, be courageous, to face difficulty, to face hardship, to face suffering, to face persecution. If God is for us, then who can be against us? 
God is for you. It's clear in this text. God is for you. Christ is with you. Remember him and rest in him. Let's pray. God, I pray that this encourages your people. Whatever it is they're facing, whatever trial it is that is boiling in their heart, that's robbing them of their peace, would you bring your truth to bear upon their hearts that they have and they've always had a help and a keeper in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is all these things. He is watching every step and he's making sure they will not slip. Oh, Father, be pleased to be over your children. Be pleased to watch over them. Be pleased to use your son, his shepherding in their life. Be pleased to mediate your presence through the Spirit to them. And I pray you would give them courage and boldness, Lord, to walk this spiritual journey. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.